World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We've been away for a little while, mainly as we prepare for the end of the academic year and think ahead to the next. It's perhaps a perfect time to think and reflect, to talk about growth and renewal. In this week's episode, we do just that. In a live recording, we ran with the Centre for Society and Mental Health and the Department for Geography here at King's College London. As you'll hear, our discussion focused on how our environment helps shape our mental well-being, as well as why this moment may present a unique opportunity to place human well-being alongside action on climate change. Hello and uh, welcome to this special uh, World We Got This live podcast, uh, Lockdown Spaces, Why Environment Matters to Mental Health. Um, a quick note before, before we get started, my name's James Bagley from the School of Global Affairs. Um, I'm going to try and stay as quiet as possible during this, um, partly cause, mainly because we, we want to hear from our fantastic panel, but also because we've got uh, building work going on outside, so <laughs> apologies if... Uh, if you if you hear that come through, but um, as I say, I'll try and mute myself wherever possible. Um, so a quick a quick note about the event. So uh, this this podcast is uh, co-hosted by the Centre for Society and Mental Health um, in uh, here at Global Health, um, here at the School of Global Affairs at King's, um, as well as the Department for Geography. Um, the Centre uh, for Society and Mental Health uh, help uh, helps explore today's changing world and taps into the social factors that shape and promote mental health. Um, today's format uh, will be as follows. We're going to hear from each of our uh, panellists who I'll speak about uh, briefly in a moment um, for five minutes each and we're going to hear about uh, various things that they've brought to today's panel um, and then we're going to have a uh, open discussion for 20 minutes where I'll be able to follow up with some uh, some follow-up questions and, and, and discussions um, around what, what we're discussing today. And then finally, we're going to have a, a live Q&A uh, from you, the audience. We've, we've had some questions sent in already, and I know uh, we're going to be monitoring social media, but please do uh, send them in here uh, live uh, on Zoom if you're watching uh, on, or on YouTube, um, and we can, we can answer those in that final 20 minutes. So do get, do get thinking about this. Uh, one final thing. Um, please do share, we, we sent out a message ahead of this event uh, to share your lockdown spaces. So maybe it's a garden or a, a park or a, uh, a window box that's, that's, that's helped you through the, through the lockdown. So you can share those um, at, uh, at KCL Geography, uh, hashtag lockdown spaces, uh, lockdown space, sorry. Um, and our colleagues will be sharing those live on Twitter. So um, I just want to briefly introduce our panel uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to our first speaker. Um, so uh, first of all, we have a special guest, Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith. Um, Sue is a, a psychiatrist and psychotherapist uh, for 13 work, uh, years. She worked as a consultant in Herefordshire, where she became lead clinical... Hart Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire, sorry. All right, don't worry. <laughs> Hertfordshire, where she, uh, she became lead clinician for adult uh, psychotherapy. Uh, following her retirement from the NHS, uh, she has specialised um, in physician health uh, and is deputy director of Doc Health Services, ran by the Medico uh, British Medical Association here in London. Uh, her book, uh, we're going to be speaking about today uh, in this discussion, uh, The Well-Gardened Mind, explores the healing and empowering effects of working with nature, particularly for people suffering from trauma, depression, and displacement. Uh, her research has brought her all over the world, um, but also to projects here in the UK. Uh, our second speaker is Dr. Helen Fisher. Helen is a reader in developmental uh, psycho, um, psychopathology uh, within the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience here at King's. She is also part of the Centre for Social, uh, sorry, for Society and Mental Health, uh, one of today's co-sponsors. And finally, we have Dr. Margaret Kajiri, uh, teaching fellow in uh, physical geography in the Department of Geography here at King's. Uh, prior to this, Margaret uh, was over at LSE, um, and her her, uh, her work and what she's going to be speaking about today uh, relates to climate change and and renewable energy. So. Uh, 
I'm just going to bring us to our first speaker uh, that I'd like to introduce, uh, Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith. Very pleased to be here. Thank you, James. Um, I'm just going to hold up the book, a <laughs> little book plug. Um, so this is The Well Garden Mind, which came out in April, um, right in the middle of lockdown. So, um, and one of the interesting things is having written in the book about how people, uh, how throughout history, people, see, people need to turn back to nature at times of crisis. Um, and in the book, I'd looked at uh, the First World War in particular, but also other research into um, after natural disasters um, and after sort of financial crises, we return to the land and we return to that, the sense that we, we recover a sense that it, ultimately it's the earth that sustains us. Um, and, and it felt very uncanny, actually, as I launched this book. Um, to and I was doing this myself, you know, buying more seeds than normal, sowing, you know, getting more involved. I mean, I grow lots of vegetables anyway, but I was getting much more involved with it. And actually, I realized I had my own experience of the psychological importance of it with the little tomato plants I had growing on my windowsill inside the house. Um, you know, I would look at them first thing in the morning before I ever looked at the news. So I think this phenomenon that we saw, and it really was very marked, people did rush and buy seeds. They became very difficult to get hold of. People who'd never gardened before were beginning to think about gardening. Um, people started to really appreciate the gardens they had as well. And we, there was a growing awareness as time went on that actually lockdown was an immeasurably much harder experience for people who didn't have access to outdoor space. And I think, so I think it's, there's a lot to think about here. Um, one of the things that struck me with my um, tomato plants was something that I have written about in the book, which was how when we work with natural growth, it gives us a way of thinking about the future. And, and you know, when, when lockdown started, um, we, we all had to cancel plans. Uh, the future was very, very uncertain. It still is, but it's less acute, that feeling now. There was a real sense of fear. And this is an effect that people can experience in other situations when they've had a mental breakdown. We saw it, uh, you could see it in history in the, in the trenches in the First World War when soldiers wrote home asking for seeds to be sent out and they created gardens, some of them right on, uh, on the front line, on the back wall of the trenches. That, that this, this is very stabilizing and it just gives us a, a little, a toehold into the future, if you like, and it's a kind of future that we can imagine. Um, you know, the, the lettuces that we're going to grow or whatever, when everything else is so very, very uncertain. So I think that, that this has actually been given a name as well by a socio-ecologist called Keith Tidball, who's, who's American, um, who's published a book called Greening in the Red Zone. And he refers to it as urgent biophilia. And there's no question that, that uh, at, the, at the beginning of the COVID crisis, and to some extent continuing now, if you look on social media, we are all experiencing that. And I think it's been intensified because there's one unique thing about this crisis, which is compared to, let's say, historical crises that I've just mentioned, which is the lack of human contact that we've been able, you know, we're doing everything through screens apart from our own small families. I know we're coming out of it now, but it's still very uncertain and we're having to keep distance. So all those aspects of human relating and social support that help people get through times of extreme stress and uncertainty were also taken away. And I, I, I think it revealed to us in a very powerful way what, how, ne how, at a fundamental level, how important nature is, how much companionship we can find in nature, in our gardens, our parks, in our trees, um, and how much caring, for, you know, care matters, that actually through caring for a garden, this, this, this is a very... Um, uh, it, 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 it relieves stress, partly through the release of endorphins. So there are many, many ways. I mean, I could, I could talk. I think I'm running out of my time, so I'm going to stop. But um, I, I look forward to saying more later on. No, that's that's wonderful too. Uh, we've got lots to discuss, but uh, definitely we've we've been just just talking about this at, at Kings and various different people that have sent questions in. They've they've definitely been a kind of uptick in people finding garden as a uh, or, or kind of nature as being a key factor in how they've got through lockdown so 
uh, it's really a fascinating time to discuss discuss mm. your book such mm. a timely moment um that's wonderful so uh, if i can now bring in helen um and and she uh, she her, uh, her five minutes Great, so thanks so much for the opportunity to join the discussion today. I'm really delighted to be here on behalf of the ESRC Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's. So just as, as Sue was mentioning, um, there's been so many benefits, I think, during the lockdown um, for green space and where people have been able to access that. And there's certainly a growing body of scientific evidence um, that regular exposure to natural aspects of the environment, such as green space, but also blue spaces, so lakes and other bodies of water, can be really beneficial for our cognitive functioning and also our emotional well-being, um, as well as obviously our physical health. So, for instance, there have been numerous studies that have reported um, children who grow up in neighbourhoods with more leafy green vegetation um, do much better on cognitive and academic tests. So it's important, though, to think about that in terms of what else is, is happening um, with those children. So certainly one of my colleagues, Aaron Rubin, suggests that actually in the UK, it may actually just be that wealthier families tend to live in neighbourhoods with more greenery. And they also provide other advantages to their children to boost their cognitive development. However, on the mental health side, there have been quite a large number of studies, um, particularly um, in uh, Denmark. Um, and in fact, some uh, studies have come out recently of the whole of the Danish population, um, where they have amazing uh, records. Um, and they found that children who grew up in areas with more green spaces had a lower risk of developing a quite a wide range of mental health disorders in adulthood, even when they took into account poverty, living in an urban or rural area and parental mental illness. Um, and they also found that the rates of mental health problems were lowest um, amongst children who had lived um, in the greener neighbourhoods for a longer period of time compared to those who just lived in them for a year. So it really suggests a cumulative effect um, of exposure to green space on our mental health. And another study of that Danish population also found that growing up in areas near blue spaces, such as lakes or seas, and green spaces or farming lands, had lower rates of, uh, the kids had lower rates of schizophrenia when they got to adulthood. Um, and as Sue was alluding to, and we can talk about a bit more later, it could be that these green and blue spaces really help us to relax, reduce our stress levels, encourage us to exercise, or simply perhaps to be more sociable and feel less isolated, which can all really provide a boost to our mental well-being. The important thing I wanted to kind of bring to the table today was that not everyone has been able to reap the benefits of gardening and outdoor spaces during this lockdown period. Um, many people who are on lower incomes, particularly those living in large cities, often reside in high rise flats or apartment blocks and have no access to green space personally. Um, and they're also uh, therefore clearly disadvantaged, particularly early in lockdown, um, when a lot of the local parks and the gardens owned by the National Trust, for instance, were shut. Um, and you were only allowed to kind of access these public green spaces briefly while exercising um, and certainly could risk a fine if you stopped um, to try and smell the roses in those parks. Um, so this has been also problematic for people who were told to shield and, and couldn't leave their homes at all if they didn't have their own um, garden or, or window box to, to tend. Um, similarly, people with disabilities would also have not been able to access some outdoor spaces during the lockdown. For instance, they might not have been able to take public transport um, to get to parks or to have somebody with them, for instance, if they were blind, um, to support them due to the issues with social distancing. Um, also, you know, a lot of people who were in lower pay jobs had to go continue to go to work and they may not have had as much time um, as those who were working from home to spend um, outdoors and, and benefit from green space. And these are, are really big issues because we know that people from disadvantaged backgrounds, those who are socially isolated and those with pre-existing disabilities are more likely to experience mental health issues. And therefore, this lack of access to green space during lockdown may well have increased these inequalities in mental health further. And this is certainly something we're keen to explore um, in the future within the centre. I also wanted to touch on a, another aspect of our environment that is a particular focus for the centre and my work, which is actually the communities we live in. So the social aspects, if you like, of our neighbourhoods, such as our sense of community spirit or being able to rely on our neighbours um, for help if we have a problem or look after our Amazon delivery or something for us um, and feeling safe 
in our local area. And all of those have also been shown to be beneficial for our mental health. So Eloise Crush from my team, for instance, has found that children living in an area with supportive neighbours were less likely to develop mental health problems such as paranoia or hearing voices, even when they had experienced severe victimisation. So that who, who is around us in our environment is also important. And I wonder if perhaps for some people, um, lockdown has really highlighted how important our local community is um, in terms of having neighbours who could do shopping for people who were shielding or unwell, as well as perhaps that kind of emotional boost or feeling of solidarity um, that came when we came out on a Thursday and, and saw our neighbours clapping um, on the doorstep for key workers. On the flip side of that, obviously, it may also have made other people acutely aware of how unpleasant, difficult or unsupportive the neighbours were, um, which might have left them feeling lonely or afraid. Um, and that's also perhaps increasing the likelihood of them experiencing mental health problems. So finally, I just wanted to turn back to green spaces and raise that the benefits of these might not be universal. So certainly from what we've heard from Sue and what I've talked about with the research, they are potentially for many people, but not everybody. Um, some people might find being in a park around other people stressful, uh, particularly at, the, at present, as if we as lockdown is easing and other people may not be observing social distancing, we might get more anxious about that. Um, and people might be fearful um, that you know, with lots of trees and other things that people could be hiding um, to potentially attract them or because some parks um, might be known for drug dealing or other crimes. And it's also important just thinking about um, the next talk to think about the fact that being outside is not always good for us um, and exercising outside um, with high levels of air pollution, for instance, would increase the likelihood of us inhaling uh, particles and gases which could damage our lungs um, leading to physical health issues but have also been shown to have an impact on our, how our brain develops and functions um, and therefore could affect our mental health. So Joanne Newbury and Susanna Roberts from my team have shown that children and adolescents exposed to high levels of air pollution outdoors um, were at greater risk of developing uh, depression and psychotic experiences such as hearing voices as they made the transition to adulthood. So thankfully the levels of air pollutants have um, particularly some of them like nitrogen dioxide may have gone down during lockdown um, which is fantastic and so it's a bit of a less of a concern but I'm sure as the next speaker will, will say um, as things start opening up we might expect some increases in, in traffic related pollutants and um, some problems again when with our access to outdoor space so I'll stop there and, and pass on to Dr Kadiri. That's great Helen I, I, it's fantastic uh, and, and, and I think uh, that's one thing we've heard from the centre, as, as you say, about the inequalities kind of on show during the crisis and how that kind of manifests itself. Um, and, it, and on this topic, as you say, in terms of access to, to green space, it's, it's really key. So it'd be, it'd be interesting to perhaps speak about that more um, in the panel. Um, uh, thinking of healing and, and, and some of the topics we've spoken about today, um, I'm going to hand over to Margaret, who I know is going to speak about how we've perhaps seen in this period a uh, um, some healing of in terms of, of the planet itself and, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about that so I'll, I'll hand over to Margaret uh, to, to give more on that. Thanks James. Um, good, good afternoon everyone. Um, I just want to start by pointing out some of the things that Sue and Helen have spoken about. So they both talked about how nature and the environment plays a key role in our physical and mental well-being. And I believe this shows that nature and the environment are deeply and directly connected to our well-being. And this makes it imperative that we, we need to protect the environment. And to protect the environment, we need to tackle the climate crisis. So on that basis, I will speak about why this moment provides us with an opportunity to think again about how action on climate change can support both human and planetary well-being. And in order to speak about why this moment presents us with an opportunity, I will first of all speak about some of the effects of lockdown, which, has, which have emerged as something of a bright spot. And secondly, on how we can respond to these developments with regards to action on climate change. We had a few technical issues during our live recording, but here's Margaret continuing her introduction. Sorry, I was just saying that in Thailand, the endangered leatherback turtles had the highest nest counts in 20 years. 
coming after five years with no nests at all. And that's not all. A recent study led by scientists from the University of East Anglia and Stanford University, published in Nature Climate Change, found that the daily global CO2 emissions fell by as much as 17% in early April, the largest drop in emissions since 2006. Now, this finding supports reports from the International Energy Agency that global CO2 emissions from fusiform combustion, the main source of greenhouse gas emissions, were about 5% lower in the first quarter of 2020 than in the first quarter of 2019. And they predict that the global CO2 emissions would fall by about 8% this year compared to 2019, the largest drop since World War II. And yet, regrettably, this massive reduction is not enough to curb the climate crisis. The United Nations Environment Programme estimates that a fall of more than 7.6% in CO2 emissions is needed every year until 2030 if the world is to meet the Paris Agreement targets. While this shows that the long-term transformations required to tackle the climate crisis would be colossal, the pandemic has also created a great window of opportunity, actually, for a global reset. Keeping lockdown restrictions, of course, to April 2030 is not a visible long-term strategy. But a number of shifts that have been brought on by the pandemic has laid the groundwork for some of the transformations that are required. So as we start to come out from lockdown, we now have to choose to move forward on climate action at the same time as we are addressing the economic and societal impacts of the pandemic in order to use this opportunity productively to steer our societies towards a new paradigm that truly addresses the climate crisis. Because if we don't, we run the risk of going back to business as usual and losing many of the recent improvements we have seen. So I will now want to briefly talk about some of the responses in relation to action on the climate crisis. So just like the global health crisis, the climate crisis requires an individual to local to global response, which is guided by science, as well as the need to protect the most vulnerable amongst us. And this will inevitably be based on political willpower to make long-term transformations that are required. So this moment has forced us to dramatically change our individual behavior in order to protect ourselves and those around us. And it has, we have done that to a degree that most of us would never have experienced before or even think would be possible just a few months ago. So the pandemic has, has made our individual actions more visible than ever before. But it has also revealed that large-scale collective action to societal challenges is possible. So an equally dramatic and sustained shift in our individual behavior that is in harmony with nature and the environment will be needed to tackle the climate, the climate crisis and protect our environment. Now, on a global scale, there is a massive opportunity now to restructure economies in such a way that the true value of nature and the environment are taken into account. We need long-term recovery strategies that value the environment as the overarching framework within which we all exist, and not merely as an economic resource. A much more substantive shift from fossil fuel combustion to clean renewable energy sources for energy generation is definitely needed now. Although some progress has been made, in deploying renewable energy technologies over time, much more still needs to be done. Because even in 2017, coal, oil, and gas accounted for up to 81% of the world's total primary energy supply. And there are still plans currently to build new coal fire power plants and oil um, and gas infrastructures in several countries around the world. Even in countries such as Norway, 
where almost all the electricity generation now comes from hydropower, they still often rely heavily on profits from fossil fuels and uh, to fund welfare systems and pension schemes. And a recent report published by Imperial College London Business School and the International Energy Agency reveals that just despite renewable energy outperforming fossil fuels financially, total investment in renewable energy is still well short of the levels needed to put the world's energy system on a sustainable path. But we can seize this moment to increase investments in existing and emerging clean energy strategy and technologies and create jobs that would accelerate the pace of decarbonization. Governments could choose to take advantage of the current low oil prices to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies and raise the price of carbon for sectors which currently don't bear the full cost of emitting greenhouse gases. This moment also presents a window of opportunity for government and organizations to implement policies that would tackle the climate crisis and address the deep vulnerabilities and inequalities, some of which Helen spoke about, that exist in our societies and in our urban way of life, which has, made, which has been made a lot more visible by the pandemic. And these policies are wide ranging, one of which includes expanding the space allocated for pedestrians and cyclists, which many cities from London to New York to Barcelona and Milan are aiming to do now as lockdown restrictions are being lifted. So in conclusion, this moment provides us with opportunities for a great reset. And my hope is that we choose a, to create a world that has at its core the health and well-being of people, as well as the health of the planet. And I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks so much, Margaret. That was, that was really, um, really interesting and, and really helpful in t- terms of thinking about this, as you say, from a kind of planetary and, and climate change perspective. Perhaps if we can uh, bring everyone back in with video, uh, we'll, we'll have a go. <laughs> um, I know, Margaret, that you've got uh, some connection, maybe some slow connection issues. Um, so that's no problem. We can deal with that as we go. So, so I guess I, we've, we've got some time now for, for, to have a, a, an open discussion. Um, and, I, and I just want to start by, by talking about, Sue, what, what your book uh, touches on heavily, which is, which is using, using gardening and nature um, uh, as a tool uh, for, for dealing with trauma and, and, and situations perhaps like, like we've had in lockdown. And I should say not just lockdown, but many have gone through perhaps traumatic health um, yes. uh, crises yeah. related to COVID, and, yes. and of course, we've yeah. had sadly bereavements across uh, yes. across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, your book starts by talking about your grandfather Ted May, yes. who who was a POW um, during the First World War, and he used uh, he he actually took part in a kind of program when he returned um, in relation to horticulture. I mean, mm. could you talk talk a little bit about that and and how it how it helped him, and maybe what, how it relates to now and, and thinking about trauma. Um, yes, absolutely. No, Ted's story was very important, and I grew to me personally, and I grew up with knowing about this. But it was only when I came to research the book uh, that I fully understood actually how much the different ways in which um, contact with nature, actually connectedness with nature, I would say more than contact, because um, we can sort of be out in nature but be oblivious, you know, have our headphones on or whatever. So it's about connectedness. Um, but but also working with the natural growth force, which I mentioned in, in my introduction. Um, and I think that if we're thinking about trauma and loss, I think I want to actually pick up on something Helen spoke about, which is the need to feel safe in nature. You know, um, urban parks, you know, we can't just sort of, we can't roll out a kind of one size fits all, you know. Um, and what, there are a number of things that, that help people more than others and the the most important thing is a feeling of safety and that can that can derive from what um uh landscape designers call a combination of prospect and refuge so that we we've got good sight lines we can see if somebody might be coming at us um but uh but there's also somewhere a sense of some kind of refuge that's safe that doesn't make us feel somebody might be lurking in the bushes um, and that's been very important in the projects I've studied that 
were working directly with veterans t today. Um, uh, it, and many of those are in walled gardens for that reason, actually. Um, and that's, that's a kind of crucial place where you start from, is that sense of safety. Beyond that, actually, the other thing that's very, very important is the, is the amount of biodiversity. And this was illustrated in some research um, by Richard Fuller uh, in Sheffield, um, where actually the, the, the more biodiversity it is, there is, the more restorative uh, a landscape is or a, or a garden is. And, and you know, there, we can think about what re reasons that might be. But again, it's not this one size fits all, you know, just a kind of bit of green lawn is not enough. Um, and particularly now when we're thinking about how do we repair nature, actually, there are other reasons apart from our mental health that we need to be doing this. Um, so that's, that's very important. Uh, I think just going back to what you're saying, James, about trauma and loss, the other aspect of working with working in gardens and observing nature and having that sense of connectedness is it gives us um, uh, a, it gives us a way of understanding um, the cycle of life. Uh, you know, you, you you know, a garden is is full of life, but there's also a lot of death in it. And the same with the seasons. I mean, what was remarkable was that for us, the the um, the crisis started in spring. You know, so we could all tap into that tremendous sense of growth in spring. But we also have to let it go. So there's always an element of, you know, little losses and grieving, but it puts it in a natural context. And I think when we've got so out of touch with, with nature and also when death, you know, death and dying and many of the rituals that are part of it have, have got slowly eroded, really, um, that, that can be very, very helpful for people. Yeah, I mean, Helen, thinking about that and actually what it means practically, I mean, in Sue's book, she, she mentions a few programs and, and I mentioned that uh, her grandfather had that, 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 that program after the war. I mean, from a policy response and thinking of the centre and it's, it's kind of uh, what, what it suggests should happen, does this mean that we're going to have to see more kind of funding towards specific programs? It's not just about saying to people, you should... Uh, you know go garden first of all many people don't have gardens but also yeah. like you say some spaces aren't appropriate for people that are, mm. that are suffering with mental health does this mean that we're going to have to see a, a bit more of a more funding and, and a kind of I guess a policy response um, yeah I mean I think, I think there's a couple of things there I think just on the the point of of, of what we might do going forward and I, I really like that um, aspect of, of what Sue's been talking about in terms of the kind of optimism and hope that um some of the aspects of, of green spaces can bring and also uh, the blue spaces I think um, James you were um, telling us offline about um, uh, one of the nice things for you in lockdown has been um, the signets being born um, on the water that you live in and I think just that idea of, of replenishment and, and optimism and, and that life is continuing around us is, is really helpful but yeah I think in terms of the, the policy I think um, uh, there is clearly you know, potentially some benefit in things like community gardening projects or making allotments cheaper for people so people can can have more access to, to space and I think that's useful um, for the kind of access to the the natural benefits as Sue was talking about but also because it allows you to interact more with other people and the kind of the social support benefits that that come from that so I think we would certainly want to protect and as Sue said maybe enhance existing green spaces so that um, as a priority so that people do um, feel more able to access them and feel safer in them um, and particularly thinking about people with disabilities and um, to, to make sure they really are accessible where you mean in the future if we can't get there on public transport we have to drive a lot and that's not allowed how will we be allowing people to, to use them um, and thinking a bit more carefully about those restrictions so I mean, early on it probably wasn't understandable in terms of social distancing but it was a bit unfair on people who didn't have their own garden or or outdoor space to prevent them from standing for more than five minutes in a in a in a park um, so even thinking in the future as we move perhaps into other lockdowns about how we might um, do that things going to be um, really important and, and how we design um, the spaces going forwards um, so I think those are important and I think yeah the, the idea of the um, individual differences is, is really important so we can't just assume that yeah prescribing going out and being outside and um, having more opportunities to garden is definitely going to increase people's mental health as I said it's going to be clearly variable 
um, across people. Um, and there's some really interesting work um, from Kings on that um, coming out of Andrew McKelly's group who have this kind of urban mind app where they get people um, to use their phone and take pictures of where they are and, and talk about um, kind of on a, several times a day how they're feeling in different spaces. And, um, and they found that actually some people, particularly people who generally are more impulsive, actually find spending time outdoors and in natural settings more relaxing and um, improves their mood more than people who don't have um, generally being uh, more uh, impulsive generally. So I think that clearly that and other studies suggest there are likely to be different benefits between people. And I think it's really important to remember that although natural spaces may be beneficial, there are lots of other things that can be really important for our mental health, um, which we can think about alongside that. So just having somebody... Um, to discuss our problems with just one person that we feel is supporting us living, as I say, in a, in a society where we feel supported by the neighbours around us and um, the culture um, and you know, even basic things like just having enough money to have somewhere safe to, to live and uh, sleep and be able to eat. All those things are, are clearly important that we need to think when we're thinking policies about all of those aspects. And and um, and Margaret, you you spoke about um, uh, some of the, the sort of presents an opportunity to think about the climate crisis, um, and and Sue's book talks about restorative, uh, how nature can be restorative. Um, in some of them, what you've presented, it, it sounds like well, we, we know that there's been a drop in emissions, um, and I, I'm I'm thinking that often we've talked about climate anxiety, so people being anxious and. And actually being affected by the the size of the climate crisis and, and what it what it presents. Yeah. I mean, do you do you, Margaret, think that this does present an opportunity not just to uh, tackle the climate crisis, but actually to do it in a kind of positive way to actually see the benefits for ourselves and perhaps even our mental health? Um, I think it does. I think this moment presents us with um, quite a lot of opportunities. Um, so the improvements we've seen in air quality and the significant reductions in CO2 emissions that we've seen this period this, during the, the lockdown has revealed that our individual actions to stop pollution or to reduce our carbon footprint can have a ripple out effect. So it can ripple out and yield um, a collective impact, right? So it's an impact that is large scale. Um, and so we, for example, in terms of transportation, coming out of lockdown, um, organizations could plan better in terms of organizing meetings and um, summits and conferences remotely. And so if we do that or commit to doing that, we could see a significant drop in our carbon footprints because our international travel would also drop. And even currently, some of that is already happening. So particularly during lockdown. So for example, there were so many um, conferences and summits that were held, held online. One particular example that comes to mind is the European Geosciences Union General Assembly. And this is a summit that would normally, this is a, um, a conference that normally takes place in Vienna, but it was done online. And there were even more participants this time than there normally is engaging with the conference. Um, the climate, um, the uh, Petersburg um, Climate Dialogue was also done virtually. So all of this has shown up in the reductions in our, in our, in our CO2 emissions. And going forward, these are simple, well, not simple, but these are policies that organizations could put in place to reduce our carbon emissions and help to tackle the climate, the climate crisis and also help to improve our physical and mental well-being. Yes, I would say something too. We're all, you know, so there, there are so many other things as well that that other policies that could be put in place. Um, for example, um, even continuing working from home after the pandemic. 
that would also help in reducing our carbon footprints. So all these um, policy changes would have significant impacts, which we have already seen from lockdown. So I guess the, the main thing that has come out of this time with the improvements we've seen is how our collective action can have a wider impact. So our collective damaging impact has already been seen in our environment, but what has been impossible until now to see is how our collective ability to address this impact is also significant when we commit to doing it together. Yeah, yeah, it's been striking. So, uh, uh, Helen, you wanted to come in there, and I, I know yeah, you after. Just briefly to say, just picking up on one of the the points from Margaret there, I think the as well as the the advantage for the climate um, to people not travelling as much for conferences globally and, and other kind of meetings we have to do as online. I think it just also increases inclusivity in the sense that a lot of people who um, for childcare reasons or health reasons or other reasons may not have been able to travel to to big meetings or events or um, other things uh, can be more included because actually they can do that more comfortably from home um, during these periods. I think there are, are many social benefits to that as well, but I think we also have to remember that not everybody um, has internet access um, and that uh, uh, can also be, a, you know, discriminate against people um, in that sense. So thinking about different ways of, of including people, I think, is important. It's a, you know, a big issue for children. A lot of children haven't had access to a computer and the Internet during this lockdown and therefore have been disadvantaged in that way. So, yeah, I think there are there are many benefits from, from what we've been thinking about during lockdown. What, what I wanted to add to what you both, both you and Margaret have said is... Um, is that while these kind of um, adaptations we might make um, at the same time do do potentially disconnect us from from our sort of let's say our team supports or our, you know direct contact with our colleagues and our our, our you know whatever our, our, our for students as well sometimes their their um, their teachers um, and I think I think for what what this has shown us this crisis is that the need to counterbalance that with a with a focus on the local. Um, and to build that up and really um, re- reconnect people. Because I think one of the things we've lost sight of is, is attachment to place, actually, the importance of attachment to place and how stabilising that can be for, for people. And I, I, I think in terms of the men- what we, we're sort of talking about mental health on the one hand and environment on the other, and I don't really see them as separate. I think I think that, that you know many of the mental health problems that we, we're seeing today, and that you know figures show that um, levels of depression, for instance, are forty percent higher in in people living in cities compared to rural counterparts, and anxiety is twenty percent higher. And in a way, our lives our, our lifestyles have become unsustainable, as well as uh, what's happening in the environment. So. We are part of nature, so I mean it's not surprising that this is us as well. And I, I think in terms of the other theme, I wanted to just sort of emphasise because we've been talking about inequality, and we know that it, actually the city, the parts of cities that suffer most from mental health problems and physical health problems are are those the lowest income, uh, and they al- almost always have the least amount of green space. And I, you know, it, to get a feeling of how how much difference it could make to introduce green space into those kind of communities. I just want to cite one bit of research, which is, was carried out by the Centre for Research on Environment, Society and Health, based in Scotland. It was a large Europe-wide study, and it, and it, and it looked at um, neighbourhood amenities across the board, and it looked at all the confounding factors that, that play into um, income, income levels and mental health. And what was really striking in this study is that really the only intervention that made a significant difference was improving green space. And the team calculated that it could um, offset the inequalities in mental health that we see uh, associated with low income and deprivation by as much as 40%, which is a huge amount. 
Yeah, it's astounding. It's um, and and I just because I was going to bring in, I, I will just say to our audience, do do send in your questions. Some have come in. We're going to go to the Q and A in in a moment. Um, I, I want to say a special shout. We just had um, the Constant Gardener on Twitter, who is the head gardener at the Salisbury District Hospital, has sent some fantastic images. He's been able to garden that. So he's a gardener there at Salesby District Hospital, and they've got a fantastic yes. garden. James, I'll tell you, this, this, um, <laughs> this unit actually appears in my book, and I, I'm also aware we haven't mentioned hospital gardens and how important they are. Um, and there's been some very nice stories, actually, of, of their role in intensive care for people coming out of, you know, when they've been suffering from COVID and on ventilators for a long time. And and actually the dramatic effect, just being feeling the sun, seeing the plants has had on them. Um, but the 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 unit at Salisbury is um, part of the spinal injuries unit, uh, run by a charity called Horatios, for patients who are who are in hospital often for six to nine months, and the gardens for them are a real lifetime lifeline. Sorry, and in this crisis, even even more so because they haven't been able to have visitors. Um, and it's been a safe, it's a safe and, and nourishing space to be. And that feels part of, you know, part of normal life as well. You know, when you're very traumatized, it's very reassuring that nature's, nature's not been changed, really. Um, and we, you know, to see nature flourishing is very important. Yeah, I ju- just, just, and I, then we're going to go to this a quick question. So I, I'll, we'll try and keep it shortish um, before we go to the Q and A, so we have time. But um, you mentioned in your book, Sue, about uh, cities and that the benefits of, of green space in urban environments mm. have been there from the very beginning, whether it's ancient Rome or Mesopotamia. Uh, you mentioned John John Evelyn, who who yes. line on on London being far greener perhaps than, than the, the design that went out. Um, do, you, do you think that, and thinking about some of the practical things that governments and cities could do, do you think this sort of presents an opportunity? And I sort of put it to Helen as well and to Margaret, I guess, from a sustainability perspective. I know there's been discussion about uh, new bike lanes and taking this opportunity to put mm, them in before mm, people mm, can, mm, can reject mm, them um, mm. while the traffic's down. So do you think this kind of is an opportunity, particularly London, to to think about if it's got the balance right, you know, about green space and access to green space. So these not being private spaces, but places where people can, can actually go. And yes, see. yes, I do. I do. And I think it's very, that's, that's crucial. Um, and, and, you know, the, the benefits are also in American research in Chicago and in Philadelphia has shown uh, benefits in reducing crime, particularly gun crime there. Um, but also people getting to know their neighbours. Um, once you create a safe space outdoors, um, uh, that actually that, that brings people together. You, you, you know, to set this up, you need you do need thinking about funding. Uh, you need a mediator. You know, you need a horticultural therapist. You need because because it has to be done safely and also needs people need to learn how to grow things very often if they don't know. But actually, once you get going, it's 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 um it's not that difficult. But it's it is very important to, to provide that aspect as well that the, the sort of human uh, the human side of it the the, the therapist who's involved is very very important. So yes, I think I think it is an opportunity. I think one of, one of the other projects I write about in the book is the incredible edible movement, uh, which started in Todmorden, and what was very very striking there was how quickly um you know people local people took to it and and it involved planting um planting food for people to share on on planters on pavements one was outside the police station uh on derelict land um and it it transformed uh, a town that was really struggling uh in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008 um, but particularly, they 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 took gardening into schools, and I think if we're thinking about the future, and people are really understanding this, feeling it in themselves, I think you know, community projects, school projects, are going to be very very important. Actually, um, uh, the, there's a phrase, uh, plant blindness. It's, you know, it's been coined to say how how many of us grow, many people are currently growing up in this state of plant blindness, not noticing plants around them, not understanding their significance, that they recede into the background. 
um, and that you need you need a mentor you need someone to, to to introduce you to this world of plants and and it's and it's fundamental role in our lives it's it's where everything all energy comes from all, all, all everything in the in the globe really that sustains life comes derives from plants I just wanted to just to pick up on the point you made many times there, um, Sue, which I think is just really key, which is just how linked as well the the kind of physical and um, green space and and natural environment around us is is linked with the social and mm. the community and how it's actually some of these um, adaptations and uh, opportunities going forward are actually going to be um, probably most beneficial if we can really link the time spent in, in those natural um, beneficial environments with the opportunity to increase social interaction and that feeling of community. So I think that's a, yeah, a really important point. And thanks for so eloquently talking about that. Thanks. Margaret, if we, so if we can go to the Q and a, uh, maybe Margaret a chance to bring you in here. Cause we've been asked um, by Andrew, whether, um, and it kind of builds on what, what I've just mentioned, does, does this mean that we have an opportunity to, put in more sustainable forms of transport, uh, in particular uh, cycle lanes um, and walkways. Uh, do you think that's that's something that perhaps we could sort of twinned with the climate change uh, discussion? Yes. So, um, again, it is something that I think we need to do now. Um, and this, the fact that lockdown and social distancing and the pandemic has and trying to curtail the spread and transmission of the, of the virus has resulted in um, us being you know, more aware of the need to have a pedestrian and um, cyclist space, more, more space allocated to pedestrians and cyclists within many cities to reduce the um, amount of people on public transport systems. So I, I think this, this moment creates that opportunity for us. And it's one of the things that, like I said earlier, that many cities have already started to put in place. And many of them are aiming to put that in place as, as, as going forward. And that would help with the pandemic as well as our CO2 emissions. That it would immediately translate into a reduction in our CO2 emissions. And in addition to that, we could also put in place other policies as well that would help to improve um, um, our climate. And that would translate into nature and the environment. So things like um, investing more in public transport systems that rely more on electricity and focusing also on renewable energy sources to generate the electricity for those public transport systems. So there there are a lot of policies that could be put in place in addition to allocating more spaces for pedestrians and cyclists in many cities that would help to reduce our carbon emissions, to improve improve our environment and also nature. And this, this, this moment creates, provides us with a lot of opportunities. It's a moment that I think we can seize on to, to, to put in place a lot of changes. And uh, so, Helen, we've got another question here, maybe Helen and Sue. Um, so uh, from Camilla, uh, I can see the benefits of gardening for mental health, uh, but doesn't it also play into the idea that we are neoliberal subjects responsible for solving our mental health problems um and uh yeah i mean do you do you want to speak to that helen yeah i mean i think as as i've already said um during my talk and afterwards uh, you know that it's going to be beneficial for some people and not for others um and actually uh, a lot of the other um things that happen around us also impact our mental health so um it's important that actually as a wider society people feel supported and not discriminated against um, and not in an unequal position and they do have support. They do have enough money to to live and eat um, and be able to go about their lives without um, being attacked or um, threatened or discriminated against. So I think, you know, there's an imperative on all of us 
to to support people around us and I think during lockdown as, as Sue said and we've talked about previously actually the the people around us the kind of the local the neighbors around us and the local community I think is is really important so I think it is you know I think there's always something that we personally can can do to improve our mental health but I think a lot of it is really clearly intertwined with with the people around us immediately and in the broader society so yeah, I'll just say something on that too. Um, yes, I think that's a that's a very um, important point, and I think what well, I go to you know some lengths in the book really to get the message across that this is not about um, you know just get out in the garden and, and you'll be okay, um, and it certainly isn't a one size fits all. Um, so, uh, and I this this um, this uh, that you know that actually we there needs to be a lot of planning and thoughtfulness that goes into making these things work um you know for instance one of the examples i give in the book is is of a an autist uh, as a, um two different centers that were built with with therapeutic gardens next door to each other and one was for um patients with a particular kind of learning disability that involved a, a lack of sensory that they were under 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 stimulated in their sensory stimulations the other the other center was for people with very profound autism and the gardens are completely different you know the the you know the 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 one garden is rectilinear and full of evergreens no nothing changes in it very much and the other is full of um little you know interesting plants interesting textures interesting um uh you know places that bring wildlife and um you know very a lot of diversity in it so i think i think it's not about sort of just rolling this out in an unthinking way and i totally um agree with that question that one has to guard against that i mean we've seen that happening with the climate crisis it's as if you know look after your carbon footprint that's what you've got to do um and it does get pushed back at the individual so i think it is very important that this is dealt with and thought about uh, in a in a social at a social and a political level, yeah. and we we've had a question um, about how nature allows us to reflect on, uh, or it's a kind of mirror on our own kind of uh, ways in which we deal with things. I, and and Sue, going back to I think your book, you you, you spoke to um, uh, a gentleman who had um, uh, been struggling with mental health, and he had had, had joined a program. Um, where uh, he, it was a horticultural program, and, and you, you mentioned how it was the sensitivity of the plants and the f- how they were fragile yes. that, yeah. that made him, that allowed yeah. him, that, that sort of mm. how it helped him and his recovery. Yeah. So, and you mentioned about loss and the cycle of life. So, do, does nature and plants do that? Do they kind of give us that way in to think about mental health? Um, I think they do, and they, it happens on different levels. Um, there's, there's, there's first of all the effect of green space and feeling safety, which has a direct effect on our brain actually, and, and has been shown to reduce stress and, uh, and anxiety, blood pressure, heart rate even, and actually to lower cortisol levels. So that's, that's happening at that level. And then there's the sort of relational level, um, which is much more of a psychological level. And one thing that was fascinating to me in, in interviewing people and, uh, on different kinds of projects with different kinds of mental health problems were the different relationships they formed with plants. So yes, you're right, this, this particular young man, for him it was the vulnerability of the plant and h- him seeing that vulnerability needn't be a disaster, that the, these plants hang on, they survive, and that he could too. He felt very, very vulnerable indeed. Um, for the veterans in, uh, who were suffering from PTSD, it was the it was the trees. It, certainly in the initial phase, trees gave them a tremendous sense of safety and endurance, and actually seemed to allow them to reattach to life. It felt safe to attach to a tree before attaching to another person. Um, that felt far too risky. Uh, so it's different aspects of nature we we respond to according to you know where we are and what we're struggling with. Well, we. James, you've muted yourself. Sorry. There you go. Can you hear me? <laughs> um, we've come to the end of our hour. We just had we just had a comment in uh, the point about nature, plants, flowers, uh, etc. Being a constant is really important. The point made by Sue. 
particularly uh, within a climate of not knowing what's going to happen next. And I think that's a really uh, good place to end because I think um, one of the things about this crisis has been it's felt like it's changed week to week um, in ways and our lives have changed in ways um, that we can't quite um, imagine. So, so that's, that's a really important point to make. So, um, so it just leaves me to thank um, our panelists, uh, Dr. Helen Fisher, Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith and uh, Dr. Margaret Kadiri. Um, a big thank you for joining us uh, on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Great to chat to everyone. Thanks, James. Thanks, everyone. Bye. A big thank you to all our guests. Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith, her book, The Well-Gardened Mind, is available now. I highly recommend it. And thank you to Dr. Helen Fisher from the Centre for Society and Mental Health. You can continue to follow the Centre's research online and on Twitter. And to Dr. Margaret Kadiri from the Department for Geography here at King's College London. You can follow Margaret and her colleagues on Twitter at KCL Geography. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.